0: Hi there, this is Steve, but this isn't the beginning of the show. Before we begin, I invite you to check out my free masterclass called The Surprising Path to Excellence. If you're an entrepreneur, business owner, or leader with financial responsibility in your company, you'll definitely not want to miss this one. I'll cover how a winning strategy combined with operational excellence drives higher cash flow and firm value. You can watch it for free at cultivar.com. I'll also link it in the show notes below. I hope you enjoy it. You're listening to the Strategic Financial Leadership Podcast, a podcast for entrepreneurs, business leaders, and professionals who want to elevate their game and reach new levels of abundance and success. I'm Steve Coffin, the founder of Coltvar, and I've spent my entire career growing and turning around companies, and together we'll explore the latest happenings in the world of strategy and finance. Let's do this. Before we begin, just remember that this podcast is for educational purposes and the information shared herein should not be construed as legal, tax, or investment advice. Check out our terms and conditions in the show notes to learn more. Now on to the show. Hey, Mer, welcome to Strategic Financial Leadership Podcast. I'm excited to have you on the, the show today, um, especially because you're in a different time zone. So thanks for joining me from the UK and uh, staying up late to do this episode here.
1: No, no worries. It's a, it's a real pleasure. Thanks a lot for having me on.
0: Well, you know, I came across your company, which we're going to get into when I was talking to this prospective client and, you know, I was looking at this financial model that they put together and I was I was really intrigued because just the, the idea behind it and like reinventing the spreadsheet is, is really fascinating to me. So I'm, I'm excited to talk more about that, but before we get into that, I really want to understand your background because so you have a degree in mathematics and statistics from the university of Oxford. So my question is: Have you always been sick, <laughs> and in numbers like that?
1: <laughs> yeah, to be honest, I, I I think you know when I was growing up, maths was always the subject that kind of resonated the most with me, mm-hmm. um, and so it kind of felt fairly natural that I would go on to study at maths at university. Um, I do think that uh that university style maths and school style maths are very different, so school style maths is you know a lot about numbers, a lot about doing sort of mechanical processes to calculate things and solve equations and so on uh, whereas university maths is a lot more about just sort of very abstract concepts and abstract thinking uh, often there's there's not even any numbers involved um, and so that was a bit of a shock for me, um, but definitely you know really enjoyed maths at university and at school um, and it always felt like a, a natural fit for me
0: that's interesting and and it 's funny because when I was in school, um, you know, there are certain classes that I just did not like. And when right. I didn't like the class, I was like super naughty in the class. So like, <laughs> uh, like science, like chemistry and class like that, no interest whatsoever. So I was the guy like, you know, lighting things on fire, mixing <laughs> chemicals that you shouldn't mix. And, uh, but math, I, I just always like gravitated towards, but I didn't really like, I didn't really recognize that, you know, at the time, like, oh, I love math. I just, I was right. like, oh, this, this class is easy and I like it. It wasn't until later on when I, I got into like accounting and especially finance where I was like, Oh, I actually like numbers. So oh, it's nice. funny because some people they're like, I hate numbers, I hate math. It's <laughs> funny that uh, some people actually study that.
1: Yeah, yeah, you definitely get a lot, a lot of weird looks from studying maths. But I, I think I think for a lot of people, even if you do enjoy maths, you might not think that, oh, maybe I should study it at university. And actually that, that was kind of me. Like it was always my best subject, I always really enjoyed it. And But for some reason, when I was thinking about what to do in the future, it didn't, it didn't really cross my mind that I could just study maths. I was thinking of things a lot more vocational, like, you know, veterinary medicine or something like that. Um, but after then uh, hanging out with a cousin of mine who's a few years older who happened to study maths, I think just kind of meeting someone else who studied maths kind of opened my, opened my mind to the possibility. And then I was kind of like, hmm, I, I really like maths. People seem to study it at university. Why don't I try that? Uh, so I think I think kind of meeting the right people to open open your eyes to things is is quite important.
0: So when you started studying at Oxford, did you have some type of picture in your head of of what you wanted to do with this type of degree, or were you just like, oh, I'm going to study it because I'm interested, and we'll take it from there?
1: Yeah, so there was a vague picture, and that vague picture definitely involved finance, and so. Um, yeah, I think mo- most people going into studying math, so you kind of know that, you know, I could always go into finance as a career and, and you don't really know what that means, right? You've just heard that this thing called finance exists. You have some, you have some ideas around, you know, it's kind of high paying, it's somewhat prestigious, stuff like that. You don't really know how you know, all the million different types of jobs there are within finance. And so I had a vague idea of, you know, I could probably go into finance or, or something to that effect. And while I was at university, I did a few internships in sort of uh, investment banking and, and, and that kind of stuff. So some, some finance related things. Um, ultimately, though, I decided that um, actually sort of tech and, uh, and, and programming was, was really much more my area of interest. And so after graduating, I became a data scientist um, at a startup. Um, and yeah, I've always also sort of been very into tech and into startups and, and things like that.
0: So, I mean, how did you do that, though? I mean, because you, you probably didn't have much experience in the world of tech? Like, yeah, you have, you have experience with mathematics, but was that a difficult transition to go from what you're studying into like a tech role as a data scientist?
1: Yeah. So I think the fortunate thing was that when I was a teenager, I taught myself uh, programming. And so when I was a teenager, I was kind of messing around making apps and websites and things like that. And so that kind of, um, got me to a good starting point where I was kind of competent enough to be able to apply for tech jobs and and, and things. Um, in a maths degree, you don't really learn too much programming. And so if I hadn't already taught myself that stuff, um, then I think the path of going into tech would have been a lot more difficult. Uh, and, you know, very few people from my university who studied maths end up going into tech, I think mostly for that reason. Uh, so I was quite fortunate that I, I already had the sort of programming skill set. And so programming plus maths is quite a good uh, sort of combination if you want to go into something like data science.
0: Do you think somebody who is is not really strong with math, right? Because I come across people and they're like, this is not my strong suit. Do you think they could still be successful? In the world of finance
1: um, to be honest I think a lot of uh, I, I haven't actually worked in finance myself so I, I would take this with a pinch of salt but it's, it's, it seems to me you know from from uh, sort of working with our, our customers at causal who are uh, you know, typically work in finance it, it seems like the real value add uh, of finance people nowadays kind of comes from a lot more of the soft skills like communication and things like that uh, I think you know so, some some basic competence with Uh, I guess, analytical thinking or quantitative thinking is kind of expected. Uh, But I think the the thing that separates, um, you know, really strong finance people is probably not that they're especially good at maths. It's probably more around the soft skills or around like collaborating with other people in the business and communicating concepts and and things like that.
0: Yeah. I couldn't agree more. Okay. So let's talk about your love for numbers. So how did this like love for numbers translate into you founding your company, um, Causal?
1: Yeah. So um, as I said, I, I worked as a, data, as a data scientist after graduating and the, um, the company that I worked at, you know, like most companies, had a bunch of financial models in spreadsheets. And this was really kind of my first exposure to uh, you know, finance teams as a whole and, and also to you know, the kinds of uh, modeling, forecasting that, that people do in spreadsheets. Uh, and so you know, the company had a bunch of these financial models. Uh, And they had a lot of the typical problems that people tend to have with spreadsheets. So, you know, only one person in the company actually understood how these models worked because of all the crazy formulas and things like that. Even then, you know, these things often break. It would be really hard to figure out why. Uh, You know, you can't really connect it to live data. It's very hard to present to people. Well, all of this kind of uh, typical spreadsheet stuff. Uh, And so while I was at this company, I worked on some projects to move these financial models out of spreadsheets uh, and into code. Um, and that kind of got me thinking around, you know, what would, a, what would a better number crunching tool look like that doesn't have these problems? Uh, it, it didn't really feel like I was adding much value in that process. I was kind of a, a middleman. I was translating the domain expertise of the finance team into a bit of code and a bit of math. But it felt like there should be really be a tool to let non-programmers do sophisticated modeling, number crunching, whatever you want to call it, without needing a data scientist or a programmer in the middle. Uh, And so that was kind of the starting point.
0: Let me ask you this, because I mean, it it seems like, you know, I I totally agree with you. I I spent thousands and thousands of hours um, in spreadsheets um, just through my my career. And, um, you know, there's a lot of things that are broken that don't work, but it seems to me like taking on the spreadsheet and like trying to reinvent the spreadsheet in a way is like very ambitious because- it just seems like there's a lot of complexity and nuances and I mean, you're going up against yeah. Excel, right? And it's yeah. like, so, so talk to me about that, like through the process where you're trying to reinvent a better way to model. I mean, did you ever get like discouraged or say, dang, this is just mm-hmm. way too much, way too complicated and want to give up?
1: Yeah. So to, so there's a couple of things I'd say. So the, the first is that we're really only trying to replace about half of what people do in spreadsheets. So, um, there's kind of two two main buckets of things that people use spreadsheets for. The first is number crunching, so building models, forecasts, that kind of stuff. And then the second is kind of the long tail of everything else that people do in spreadsheets, like making lists of things, managing business processes, all this kind of stuff. And so we're we're not really concerned with this sort of second bucket of everything else, we're really just concerned with the number crunching side of things. Uh, And so it is, you know, causal is a bit more limited than Excel in that we're specifically for uh, modeling. We're not for all the other stuff you might do in a spreadsheet. Um, But I think think to be honest, it was just uh, a lot of naivety um, that got us started. I think we didn't really have any idea of, you know, (laughs) what we were getting into. And to be honest, I think if, if we had fully understood the difficulty of trying to build a productivity tool and trying to build a productivity tool to replace something like Excel, which people have been using for for decades. I'm not, I I think we would have probably done some more brainstorming to find a simpler idea. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But I'm glad we had that naivety and we kind of powered through, um, we're now sort of two years in, uh, because it feels like, I I don't think we'll replace sort of uh, Excel completely, uh, but it does feel like we can can certainly, you know, provide a much better tool for lots of use cases, for example, financial modeling. and so, yeah, I think, I think naivety got us into it. I think we do have uh, a possibility of making a dent in the market.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And you have a co-founder and, and I'm sure that's very helpful to um, have somebody in this with you. If if somebody's looking to start a business and they're kind of like, they, they take the approach, the rugged individualist approach where they're like, I'll just do it myself. And, you know, I don't want to bring somebody else into that. Good idea, bad idea. What are your thoughts on having a co-founder?
1: Uh, I mean certainly in my experience, uh, I don't think I could have done it alone. I think I think just from a for, from a product standpoint, the product that we're building is uh, incredibly complex. And so, even even just like building the product and ignoring the, the other half of business, which is sales and marketing and so on, even just building the product would have been extremely difficult without um, my co-founder, who's um, you know amazing when it comes to technical stuff. I think I think it, it kind of depends on the product, and it depends on how much you understand about your market. If your product isn't super complicated, and you know you have a very good idea of who your customer is and how to sell to them, um, then you know I, you you might well be fine as uh, as a solo founder. I think in our case. Um, two people really helped because the product is very complex and because we actually didn't know too much about our market we had this general idea of you know we want to uh, replace things like financial modeling but neither of us had worked in finance before and so the process of like talking to you know hundreds thousands of people to figure out you know how, you know who might we sell causal to what are the use cases and so on i think it's been really helpful for us i'm sure if uh, yeah for more experienced people building uh, simpler products where they know who exactly who they're selling to you can probably get away with one person and be fine.
0: Yeah. Good point. So you brought up something very important. So as you're out there and you're talking to different finance professionals and, you know, whether it's the CFO or the other leaders or analysts or people um, in the space, what were like the, the common pain points that kept coming up over and over again when it came to like talking to these people?
1: Yeah, so I think there's two big things. The, the first is um, that finance teams currently do a lot of manual work with data. And so uh, most finance teams at the end of each month need to spend uh, generally like one to two days manually pulling in data from their accounting system and other places to, to kind of incorporate these actuals into their financial models. Uh, and you know, very manual process, very error prone, You know, it takes one to two days a month. And so just kind of having a tool that automatically uh, integrates with accounting systems and ERP systems like Zero and NetSuite and so on. That saves finance teams a ton of time and a ton of, uh, you know, kind of reduces the chance of making mistakes. Um, so the data piece is, is one big part of it. Um, and then the other big part is kind of uh, the process of sharing financial models and forecasts with other people. Um, I think this was something we really underestimated um, when we got started. We, you know We were really focused on the actual... Uh, experience for building a model you know how do you write formulas how do you structure things and so on but it turned out that the actually presenting these models and having really beautiful visualizations and so on uh, this was a really important part um, for people because that's a big difficulty of having uh, spreadsheets Uh, you typically have a few kind of static charts and tables it's very hard for people to play around with the numbers it's very hard to collaborate and so on and so I'd say I'd say like automating the manual data side of things and having really engaging visuals and, and being able to present things interactively Uh, kind of two of the big things.
0: Yeah. And I, I mean, I couldn't agree more. And I, you know, when I was a CFO and I'm working with my, you know, accounting team and FP&A group, and that was the big thing is like, how do you tell the story behind, you know, the spreadsheet and some of the spreadsheets were just so complicated and there's so many tabs and there's so many rows and columns. And like, at the end of the day, it's like, how do you take that, right? This giant, you know, workbook and communicate you know, the end result to, yeah. you know, the key stakeholders. And I always thought that was such a challenge. I mean, yeah. What, what are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, for sure. I think, I think, um, I think a, a big, a big part of the challenge comes from the fact that um, just having it in a spreadsheet adds a lot of complexity. So for example, if you're a company that sells, you know, five different products in uh, three different countries. You will need 15 copies of every formula to be able to incorporate that level of detail into into your spreadsheet model. And then when you share the spreadsheet with someone for them to take a look, they're going to see like, you know, millions of different numbers, a bunch of different tabs. It's going to be hard to know, you know, what should I be looking at? What should I be playing around with? Um, And so one of the things that we think is really important at Causal um, is that when you're presenting these kinds of things to people, they really need to be interactive. Uh, People need to be able to actively engage with the numbers. Um, for them to kind of understand what's going on and how we solve that at causal is that once you've built a model uh, in causal so once you've defined your formulas and plugged into your data and so on we automatically generate like a really simplified dashboard view which just has your charts and tables and your key assumptions and then people know exactly what they can change they can change the key assumptions at the top all the charts and tables update in real time Uh, and so the way people use these causal dashboards is that you know you might be in a board meeting and you'd have a dashboard uh, you know, up, up on the screen, and so if someone has a question around, hey, what happens in this scenario if our growth rate is a little bit higher in January or something? Instead of then having to go back to Excel, making some changes, sending around an updated file, you can you can play with that scenario in real time by updating a number in a dashboard, and everyone can see how that how that affects things. And so having people actively engage with a a forecast or a financial model, uh, I think it's kind of the best way to to get people to understand what's going on.
0: And I agree. And I, and I think that's so smart. You know, I remember there's so many times where, for example, there's a time where we're acquiring a company and, you know, I built the discounted cash flow model and we're looking at this, um, this model and it's like, it's so static, you know, most models are just static, right? So it's like, you say, okay, well, what's the valuation range? And you look at the spreadsheet and you say, this is what it is. Right. But then, to be able to change all the assumptions like you're talking about is so critical so like i used right. to run like monte carlo simulations and things like that which got super complicated yeah like there there's <laughs> products out there where you can you could run different you know distributions on different variables because you know like if you're looking at a, a discounted cash flow model and you want to understand the valuation of a business yeah. you can say okay well you know i have a revenue assumption well what if I'm off, you know, like say right. I have $10 million here, but what if instead of $10 million in year three, it's actually seven or five yeah. or yeah. 20, you know, and to be able to change those numbers quickly and all the assumptions, okay, what if our gross margin changes, you know, what if our cost of capital is wrong. What if it, you know, instead of 12, it's, it's actually 11 or 15, um, to be able to like change that quickly without blowing up the whole model is so key. And I think the, there almost needs to be like more of a modeling school too, because I think people could build dirty models and like, you know, you embed a certain number, like cost of capital in one spot. And then it's, it's formulated in another spot and you're trying to change things, but the, the model doesn't change. I mean, you can make some really bad decisions.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think um I think you know spreadsheets is super flexible but the downside is that it's very easy to end up building something with bad bad practices with mistakes and so on. Uh, and I'm really glad you brought up the point around um, Monte Carlo simulation because that's actually uh, sort of at the at the core of what causal does. Um so actually the starting point for thinking about causal was that um you know we, we kind of thought, you know people have all these financial models and things, you're entering a single assumption, you're seeing like a single output for like, you know, revenue in this month. Um, but it's very hard to understand like the sensitivity of each of your assumptions and, you know, if you if you make an assumption like, hey, the growth rate is going to be like 5% or something, um, you know, it's a very specific number you've entered and, and it's guaranteed to be wrong. Really, in your head, you probably think it might be anywhere from like 2 to 8%. In a spreadsheet, if you want to account for this uncertainty, you'd have to like uh, set up a bunch of different scenarios, maybe one like a worst case scenario at 2%, one base case at 5%, one sort of uh, best case at 8% or something. Uh, and this kind of triples the complexity of your spreadsheet. Uh, one of the things that you do with causal is actually work directly with ranges. So if you're unsure about a number, instead of committing to five percent, you can literally write an expression like two percent to eight percent, and then causal will actually run ten thousand Monte Carlo simulations behind the scenes. And then instead of uh, outputting a single number for your revenue, it'll actually output a range. So we'll say, you know, based on this two to eight percent range you've entered uh, for your input you know, you you can expect a revenue between, you know, 2 million and and, and 4 million or something in in January next year. Uh, And so we're really big on getting people to actually incorporate uncertainty into their models um, because no one is, is absolutely certain about the assumptions.
0: Exactly. I mean, in models can have tons of assumptions. And I, I just, I always wonder, like, how can you make decisions off so many assumptions in a static model? Right. right. It just doesn't make sense. I mean, here's the thing. It's like I think so many people get caught up in like the preciseness mm. of numbers, right? Where they want to have some type of answer. So let, let's just say you're trying to figure out your cash burn, right? And you're a startup and you say, okay, I want to figure out how much cash we're going to burn over the next 12 months. So many people will build these like dynamic models to come up with this exact number. Okay. It's five million, you know, three hundred and twenty-six thousand, da da, da da, right. Yeah. And, you know, when I was a CFO, I, I'd always say, okay, let's look at different ranges, different assumptions, and like, let's make this thing more dynamic because sure, you could come out with an exact number, but you and I both know that even the best <laughs> models can't predict that stuff. So, how do but, you think finance professionals should balance like this need for precision? Right. Cause you don't want to just have like this dirty model yeah. um, that's not precise, but also not get so caught up in the precision. That you miss like all the assumptions and in the story behind the numbers, what do you think the balance yeah. is there
1: yeah for sure it's definitely tricky i mean the, the, there's a phrase I, I can 't remember where I read this, but I think I read a phrase which was something like you know it's better to be approximately correct than precisely wrong, and I think a lot of people end up in the precisely wrong bucket by just having like very you know very fixed assumptions in in their models. Uh, I think I think running lots of different scenarios is kind of a good way to understand the, the range of possible outcomes. And so, you know, even if you're using Excel rather than something like causal, uh, you know, there are ways to set up multiple scenarios. So you can you can say that, hey, you know, we're actually accounting for uh, this assumption being from X to Y and this one being from you know, A to B and, and, and so on. I think scenarios are really underrated and underused. I think they're mainly underused because it's actually quite a lot of work to set them up in a spreadsheet without getting you know too into the details of like spreadsheet formulas. You either have to have like you know three copies of everything if you want three scenarios or sure. you have to set up like a drop down with if statements and stuff like that. and either way it's, it's a lot of work, it's a lot of manual plumbing you have to set up, and that's where having uh, a, a sort of dedicated financial modeling tool can help uh, causal, for example you know, in addition to letting you work with ranges and and doing Monte Carlo simulation, we also have a scenarios feature where you can, you know, in like uh, two clicks, spin up a new scenario with a different set of assumptions and compare it side by side against your original scenario. Uh, and so I think, you know, scenarios are a really great way um, to kind of understand the range of possible outcomes. So you, you can kind of make sure that you're you not sort of flying blind and assuming that your assumptions are going to be correct.
0: Let me ask you this. So there, there's a lot of business leaders that you know, they're, they're pretty, I'd say proficient in spreadsheets. Okay. And they're, they're pretty good with numbers. Do you believe telling the, the story behind the numbers holds equal importance? Or do you believe that everyone in the business should just be able to interpret the numbers? So that makes sense. Like, is it the responsibility of the, the finance professional to be this great storyteller, or do you think people should invest more in their financial acumen to understand the numbers themselves? Hey, real quick. I hope you're enjoying this episode. If you're an entrepreneur or business leader and you want to take your game to the next level, or you want to avoid being crushed out there during these uncertain times, be sure to check out our free masterclass called the surprising path to excellence by visiting cultivar.com or through our boosting your financial IQ app. I'll link this in the show notes as well. I'm also offering some freebies. So be sure to check it out now back to the show.
1: Uh, yeah so I, th- I think um, I think it needs to be much more the latter than it currently is so I think a lot more people that work in businesses outside of the finance team should actually have a reasonable understanding of um, how the business works and the economics of the business um, I-, I think there's a couple of reasons for this the, f- the first is that if-, if you're working at a company if you're outside of you know the senior leadership you might actually be quite far removed from, the actual customers of the business or how the business actually generates money um for example if you're a software engineer at a at a company uh you know day to day you're writing some code you're adding features to the product you're quite far removed from what's act what that's actually doing for the business um, and so it, it can often be quite demotivating for you know people in those kinds of roles to not really have a sense for how how their work is fitting into the business uh, and so if if more people in a company had greater visibility around the numbers and and the business model and the financial model, um, they could actually have like a much better understanding of how their work fits into the business, uh, which I think is a really important motivating factor when you're doing work. Uh, I think the other thing is uh, around aligning people on priorities. I think, um, you know, currently finance are kind of the gatekeepers to understanding the numbers of a business, you know, uh, most people outside of the finance team will typically, you know, for example, when I had my previous job, I would not be able to tell you what the revenue of the company was. Uh, I wouldn't really be able to explain the unit economics, all of this kind of stuff. And so there was a big disconnect between the finance team who understood this stuff um, and everyone else. And it kind of means that when it comes to, you know, prioritizing what to work on, if, if, if only very few people in the business actually understand how the business works, uh, chances are there are a lot of other people in the business who are not necessarily working on the highest priority things, and so if everyone understands, uh, you know, where the business currently is and where it needs to go, then they can kind of plan their work accordingly. You know, work on the right projects to move the right numbers, um, rather than just the finance team and the CEO understanding what's going on.
0: You no, know, and I, and I think that's so critical. I mean, I was just talking to um, a business leader the other day about you know value drivers of a business, and it's interesting to me because what most companies do or what most consultants do when they go into an organization and they're trying to like help them financially, trying to improve their financial health, most of them focus on cutting overhead, cutting G&A. And if you look at the economics of most businesses and the value drivers, cutting overhead actually has the the least impact in most situations. Now, some businesses, don't get me wrong, their overhead is too heavy. It's impacting the business. Their cost structure doesn't make sense. But the main value drivers are you know, growth and margin improvement, right? But it, you know, to your point, I think there's, you know, a lot of people in the business. And if you don't understand the numbers, if you don't understand what the value drivers are, and the value drivers at a granular enough level, you know, where you have influence, then your priorities may be completely out of whack. Right. And you're you're focused on things that don't have, you know, the upside in relation to the effort that you're putting into it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of times these things are quite uh, unintuitive like it, it, it might seem like a good idea to you know try and cut gna i mean it's, it, it certainly sounds plausible but if you had access to a financial model where you could run some scenarios and see hey should we you know, spend the next quarter cutting gna or should we spend the next quarter working on this new initiative which could uh you know reduce our drive revenue or increase margins it, it's not immediately obvious that cutting gna is a bad idea but if if you have access to the numbers in the model then you can actually get that answer
0: exactly no, I, I like that. So, probably one of the biggest things that drives me crazy about uh, modeling is this idea of like putting numbers into like a trailing twelve-month format, so you can you can eliminate seasonality. So, like when you're looking at revenue, you're always looking at twelve months, for example, like January through December, February yeah. through January, right, and so on and so forth. So whenever I build these models and I want to look at trends of a company, I have to like jimmy rig it. So I have have to add another worksheet or I have to add more columns. Um, But without that, you know, you get this like anaconda, like up and down schizophrenia type um, looking graph where it's like May's up, June's down, you know, July's up, August is up, September's down. Right. And it's, you you get numbers all over the place. Right. And um, but when you start putting it in this like trailing Trailing format, then all of a sudden you can start to see the the true trends and, and see the, the true story behind the numbers. Why do you think more people don't model like that? Why do you think there's are there aren't more tools out there to to model in this way, or is that way just yeah. a dumb way to do it?
1: Yeah, I think um, I think you know accounting for seasonality is uh, is super important, um, particularly in industries like retail, where for example. Even if you're having, uh, you know, a record-breaking year, you know, uh, an average December might beat your best-ever January or, or February or, or whatever. Um, I, th- I think part of it just comes down to the trickiness of uh, of actually implementing something like that. So I think, um, you know, if you don't have a particularly, you know, r- quantitative background, you might not sort of uh, realize that you could have like a you know, a trailing average where. Uh, you know, instead of just looking at the, the number from this month, you could have like a three-month moving average uh, that always looks at uh, the past three months and uh, and takes an average to smooth out the differences. I, I think there is a bit of like a, a a mathematical aspect to that that maybe not everyone is uh, is aware of. I think it's also just kind of tricky in in, in a lot of tools. You know, you, you'd have to kind of know how to write the formula. Uh, you'd have to kind of add this stuff in manually. Uh, yeah, I, I guess you'd have to know, okay, which of my uh, which parts of my model are going to be affected by seasonality. And so which, which parts do I want to smooth out by having extra columns, extra rows and so on. I think it just takes a lot of manual work. And so it's, it's often easy to let that fall by the wayside. Gotcha.
0: Yep. That makes sense. All right. Let's talk about this strategic financial leader. You know, you and I, before the show, we, we talked about kind of this, this vision that I have and how I see like this role, like progressing over time. And I see it as like, you know, the accounting finance professional, has so much more value than like sitting in a back office with the green shade on doing debits and credits, focusing on transaction and compliant type work. So I think there's this like reinvention going on, but in order for the reinvention to go on, I mean, I don't know about you, but like every company I visit, like the accounting and finance department is usually like the most swamp department. Now I may be a little biased, but they're like working a ton of hours. They're always scrambling to get like reports out the door. So to say to them, Hey, you need to, spend a little bit more time looking into the future, being more strategic forecasting and planning, they could look at you like you're crazy, right? <laughs> so how do you believe financial professionals, and, and let's skip the CFO for now, um, how do you think they could be more efficient, proactive, and more accurate in financial forecasting um, if you had to name the top three things?
1: Yeah, sure. So I think, um, I, I think a, a big part of uh, the sort of day-to-day that is easy to get lost in is all the manual work involved with data. So as I said earlier, you know most finance teams have to spend a couple of days every month manually pulling data from accounting systems and different sources, pulling them into the spreadsheet model, comparing budget versus actuals, all of this stuff. Um, these are processes that don't really require too much human judgment uh, and they should really just be automated. And so you know, most, most FP&A or financial modeling tools um, you know, we'll typically have live data integrations into your accounting system, and will automate this process of doing budget versus actuals and so on. And so, I think um, I think if a finance team is spending, uh, you know, two two days a month on that stuff, um, that definitely kind of reduces the amount of time you can spend on more important strategic things. And so, I, I would I would say um, probably the most important thing is to automate these manual data processes, uh, and it also reduces the chances of making mistakes um, if you have a computer d- doing the stuff for you. Um, then you can be much more sure that the numbers are correct versus doing it by hand. And so, yeah, I think automating the manual data stuff uh, will save a bunch of time. I think in, in terms of improving accuracy nowadays, you know, most companies have uh, you know a ton of software tools that they're using and they're tracking a bunch of data uh, across all of these tools. And it's actually really helpful to be able to incorporate um, data from other sources into financial models. Uh, So most people typically incorporate their accounting data into financial models. So revenue expenses, all all of that kind of stuff. Um, But I've seen very few people actually incorporate operational metrics into their forecasts. Um, So, you know, actually looking at, you know, if you are say an e-commerce website, looking at the number of visitors to your website from different ad channels and all of this kind of stuff, stuff that won't live in your accounting system. I think once you start incorporating this extra data, um, you can get to financial forecasts that are a lot more accurate and a lot more actionable, um, where the outcomes you know, will be things like, hey, we should uh, increase our top of funnel from our Google ads. Um, you know, th- this is something that you won't be able to find uh, in your chart of accounts, right? Uh, and so I think incorporating more data from different systems is really important. And then the, the third thing I'd say is to kind of empower more stakeholders in the business to understand the financial uh, model themselves. Uh, I think if, if everyone in a company has to kind of go through the finance team in order to get these insights, obviously the finance team will always have a limited amount of bandwidth. And so if you can provide uh, tools, for example, interactive dashboards to heads of departments, then they can do a bunch of the work themselves. And then when they do have the meeting with the finance team, you know, you've kind of laid the groundwork, they have all the understanding and you can get to the stuff that's a lot more strategic rather than spending, you know, most of the meeting, walking them through an Excel model and explaining that stuff. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, I like that. And, and very good advice. And, and I think that's key. Uh, what about for high level financial professionals like the CFO? How do you think CFOs, how can they focus on these growth oriented activities while also ensuring that their controllers and their teams are providing accurate data?
1: Yeah, to be honest, I think I'm uh, <laughs> probably not a great person. I've never worked as, as a CFO myself. Um, yeah, I, I, I do think generally just kind of making sure that uh, pr- processes are as automated as possible. For example, if, if you know that your sort of <clears throat> variance analysis or budget versus actuals is completely automated by a tool, then as a CFO, you don't have to check in with the finance team once a month or uh, you know every week or whatever to make sure that's done. Uh, so I think, yeah, just sort of automating the manual processes uh, is probably the biggest thing that I've come across, um, but I'm very limited in my exposure to that kind of stuff.
0: Sure. Well, I remember as a CFO... You know, I would get so many phone calls and emails with like the newest, you know, gadget to try out the, the newest technology that I should have implemented. And, you know, it's just kind of overwhelming at some points. So what would you say to somebody who's like, Timur, I get this, like, this is great. You know, I can see the value in it, but it's just one other thing. Like this causal, like we just don't have the time to implement it. We don't have the time to learn it. What would be your response to that?
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, this, this is something that we come up against fairly regularly because, uh, you know, as you said, most finance teams are spread very thin. Uh, and so the idea of making sort of uh, a time investment into some new thing when you already have a million things on your plate, you know, it's not particularly compelling. Um, I think it's worth sitting down and just kind of uh, doing a, a back of the envelope calculation on, on the ROI of, uh, of implementing a tool. So for example, with causal. You know, it typically requires ten to fifteen hours of work from a finance team to implement it, and this is typically over two to three weeks. Um, And usually, within in the first month of using causal versus Excel, you will typically save. You will typically get those ten to fifteen hours back, uh, just from time savings involved in the data automation and other things. And so, I I think like sitting down and kind of analyzing the ROI of uh, of a new tool. It can actually lead you to realize that actually, you know, within month one or month two, I'm going to have more time as a result of uh, investing in this new tool. Uh, I think that's something that a uh, way of thinking that a lot of people don't necessarily do, uh, and so I, I'd kind of recommend doing that. If it turns out that you know you're going to see returns from using a product twelve months down the line, uh, then that's very hard to justify. But if you're going to kind of make it up within one to two months. I think it's a lot easier to justify to your own team and the rest of the company as to why you should be spending this money and this time on this new tool.
0: Sure. That makes sense. And in your tool, is it web-based? How does that work? Is it an app for people who are listening? Like, How do they get started with your product?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So it's a, uh, it's a browser based web app. So it's a bit like Google sheets in that sense where it's completely in the browser. Um, you can just head over to causal.app uh, and sign up for an account. Also very happy to kind of uh, show a personalized demo to any listeners of this podcast. Uh, and so you can book a demo with me on the website or just email me at uh, tamor.causal.app. Uh, but yeah, it, it's all web-based and that kind of means it's much easier to collaborate. So, you know, instead of sending around an email attachment, you can just, um, you know, send a link to your interactive dashboards to people in your company and you can control who has access to this link as uh, so you can have different permissions for different people. And, and so on.
0: that's great. Do you believe CFOs should be spending a lot of their time in spreadsheets, or do you think they should be focusing more of their time on telling the story behind the spreadsheets and how do they balance that? Because like there's, there's times where I'd have to rely on my team, you know, they're giving me a spreadsheet and I'm like, okay, I don't have time to look at this before this yeah. meeting, but I'm out to go present on this data. And hopefully it's right. And there's not any error. I mean, w- what are your thoughts on that? How much, how do you balance that as a, as a financial leader of being in the spreadsheet versus just like focusing on
1: telling the story? Yeah. I mean, we typically see CFOs uh, a lot more focused on the storytelling side of things. and And that feels about right to me uh, I think, uh, you know, there's typically a finance team underneath the CFO who can kind of focus on the actual nitty gritty of uh, of the spreadsheets themselves. Yeah, it's, uh, I think obviously you, you want to make sure you understand the spreadsheet um, and understand the numbers that you're presenting to people. I think a lot of that understanding also comes from sort of talking to people around the business, like talking to the heads of departments to understand, uh, you know, how they've been spending money and generating revenue and so on. Uh, and so I think uh, part of the job of the CFO in telling the story is to not only be telling the story of the spreadsheet, but also to have wider context around uh you know what different departments have been doing. And that context is might not be something um that others in the finance team necessarily have. Uh so I I think there's a lot more to the storytelling side than just the uh the spreadsheet. And I think CFOs should probably focus more on the storytelling um, than on spreadsheets themselves. Yeah, I agree.
0: So what, what's your ambition here? You know, do you want Causal to one day overtake spreadsheets. I know you kind of said that there's different use cases here, but I mean, what's your grand plan for this? You want want to build this company to be a massive firm and widely used across the world or what are your thoughts here?
1: Yeah, sure. So our grand vision is is for causal to be kind of the way to work with numbers on a computer. Uh, In the same way, the spreadsheets for the past 40 or so years have been kind of the way to work with numbers. Anytime you need to do anything with numbers, the first thing you do is open up Excel or Google Sheets uh, and you can kind of do it all there. And so we want causal to be the go-to tool for anything relating to number crunching. Um, And so we're actually a little bit different to a lot of financial modeling tools uh, in the sense that we're not specifically a financial modeling tool. We're, We're a very, very general modeling tool. Uh, We have obviously lots of finance teams using us. We also have marketing teams, engineering teams, sales teams. You can use calls to build forecasts and models for almost anything. Um, And so our grand vision is to be this very kind of general tool where every every team in a company has models, has uh, charts, has data in causal, and you can kind of combine all these different models together so that it's not just the finance team um, that has access to, to these kinds of insights, but it's much more of a collaborative process around the business.
0: I love it. I think you're, uh, you're well on your way. So, you know, for the listeners out there, if you haven't checked out causal, if you haven't heard of causal, definitely, um, take a look. Like I said, um, I came across it when, you know, I was talking to this prospective client and they built this amazing financial forecast. And I was like, wow, I need to, um, I need to get this guy on the show because I think it's a very fascinating tool. Okay. Last question. Um, kind of random. So my Audible credit here, I'm going to get an Audible credit in a few days. And so I need a new book. Um, any book recommendations that you could provide that have been like mon- monumental in your life?
1: Yes. So uh, there, there are two books. One, one is kind of related to this discussion. One is, one is a, a lot more random. Uh, so the one related to the discussion is a book called The Floor of Averages. Uh, this book basically talks about how, you know, in, in our day-to-day life, we always think in terms of averages and even in our, our models, financial models and so on, uh, we always do things in terms of averages, but actually understanding the range of possible outcomes is super important. Uh, and if you always deal with averages, you're going to end up being very wrong about lots of things. For example, uh, most project estimates about how long things are going to take are wildly off because people just work with averages rather than understanding the range of uh, the, the range of possible outcomes. And so, this book, The Floor of Averages, Uh, really completely changed the way that I think about numbers entirely. Uh, Anytime I see the word average or I see a number, it always uh, kind of makes an alarm bell go off in my head as to, okay, what are the potential traps I might be falling into by assuming averages here? Uh, And so I think The Floor of Averages is uh, is an amazing book for anyone who works with numbers. Um, So that's a relevant one. The more random book recommendation uh, is a book called Unconditional Parenting. Uh, it's it's ostensibly a parenting book, uh, but I think it's more of a, a sort of philosophy or kind of ethics book. One thing that i that I've sort of always kind of felt is that in society we don't really give children enough sort of credit or respect uh, i think uh we we treat children in a very different way um, from adults and uh, particularly when it comes to things like parenting, uh, I think a lot of the strategies and a lot of the the methods that uh that most parents uh, use don't necessarily lead to the best outcomes for kids, and so I think this book on conditional parenting uh, presents like a really interesting philosophy on how you know the, the mindset we should have when kind of interacting with kids in society. And I think you know even if you're not a parent, you know most people have been you know have parents and have gone through childhood. I think it sheds a lot of light. Uh, And and really helped me kind of see my, my own childhood in in kind of a new way. I think I I broadly had a very good childhood. So um, I I think that there's very interesting insights that anyone can get from reading this book, which seems to be about parenting, but it's really more about philosophy.
0: See, I I think that's interesting. I'll I'll check that out because I just watched the movie uh, peanut butter Falcon this last weekend. And, right. you know, it's about, uh, there's a, a special needs, um, uh, character in there. And it, it's fascinating how this guy that he connects up with how he treats him. Right. He doesn't baby him. He try, doesn't try to put limitations on him. He's like, put your own shirt on. Right. He's like, yeah, I don't care if yeah. you have your special needs. Like you could do it yourself. And it right. was really like empowering to see that. And, and I think with, you know, the youth and the generations coming up, like sometimes they just need the opportunity to try and put their skills into practice. And yeah, yeah. So now I'll, I'll check these out. If, if they're bad, um I'm going to come back to you and you're going to owe me a credit an Audible. Yeah, credit. Well, I'll refund
1: you that Audible credit. <laughs> okay.
0: yeah. All right, deal. No, thanks a lot for being on the show. I, I this is a the very fascinating conversation and you know I never like to pitch products to my audience, but when I do come across a product that I get excited about and I could tell you like I'm a nerd for like financial modeling. Like I love financial models. So when I come across um, good products, obviously I want to share that with the group. And I think what you're doing is really fascinating. I think um, your your tool has a lot of use cases for the listeners out there. So check it out. Thanks for you know sharing your story and and your insights. And I, I wish you all the best um, as you continue to to grow your your business and impact a lot of people's lives.
1: So. Yeah. Great. Great to chat. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Hey, thanks for tuning into the show. If there's any way I can be helpful to you and your business, or if you have feedback or ideas regarding this podcast, shoot me an email at contact at cultivar.com. I would love to connect all the best.